0: Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. Before we talk about allergies, the truth about allergies. So do you have a pet that's allergic? This is the time of year, actually, when you're most likely to see that. Well, see that is the right way to put it, because our dogs generally don't ah, 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 choo, like we do. How do they respond? Or cats, we'll talk with Dr. Adam Christman about that in a moment. Uh, You know, we were talking last week about the most popular dog breeds, and French Bulldog is now number one on the list, replacing the Labrador Retriever, which had been number one for 31 years. We're going to talk with a veterinary behaviorist about breed-specific behaviors. And that's kind of a tough one, because as you know, I I think, some of you know anyway, that I'm very much opposed to anything that's breed-specific. We talk about this a lot, for example, that uh, some uh, pet insurance, some, I'm sorry, rental for homeowner's insurance uh, or condo insurance, some of those companies say if you have a certain breed, uh, then we're not going to insure you at all or if we do insure you, we're going to charge you more money for it, which makes no sense. However, the reality is that dog breeds, many of them, have been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and bred a certain way to do certain things. So, in fact, there are some differences. So what, it's subtle. So what is breed specific and what isn't? It's going to be an interesting conversation later in the program. Dr. Adam Christman is the chief medical officer at DVM 360. Boy, DVM 360, for those who don't know, this is everything. You, you organize conferences for yeah. veterinarians, publications for veterinarians as Very well.
1: Good. Yeah. It's, I, I love continuing education. You know, as soon as those graduates walk across those stage, you know, we're going to be there for them to address all their continuing education needs. And it's a profession that's always evolving, as you know. Uh, that's why we're here at all these different conferences, publications. We have podcasts. And our learners, as we're learning, learn differently and so whether they digest information through a podcast through a live event through a webinar we really want to go where their needs are met so yeah,
0: yeah. it's it's really incredible what's happened uh, through the pandemic
1: oh my gosh it's taught us so much it really has where you know first we were we had to go virtual we had to pivot and you know fun fact i don't know if you know this steve is i took this job oh i do 48 hours before i do
0: i do <laughs> I do And only you could have I mean, you were the right person to
1: do this But thank you I mean, I relied heavily on you For contact, for help, for mentorship I mean, this is one thing I will say On me? Yes You didn't need me Our profession is wonderful With people that are just so willing to help you know, help each other out for the greater good of the profession, for the animals. And, you know, during a time when we're on lockdown, I was like, oh my gosh.
0: So, did you call? I mean, this is interesting to me. Did you call any veterinary professional that ever said, at that point in time, especially when things were so stressful? No. And it wasn't about money either. It's like, yes, of course.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I got to give one huge shout out to somebody that really uh, took me under his wing when this happened. And it was Dr. Marty Becker. Hmm. Uh, This gentleman knew that what I was about to go through was going to be something. We all were going through stuff. But in terms of a career change right before this, to go from me practicing for 18 years into this role he's like you're going to need a little guidance along the way and he's been and he still is just so instrumental with everything that that i've been doing so i have to give him a huge shout out
0: (laughs) that's 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 nice it's deserved yeah Uh, i want to talk about allergies with you we're entering that season for human beings springtime is it also uh seasonal in dogs the same way as it is in people
1: yeah it really is and we find that as we're going from the season so for example as we're coming out of winter going into spring we're coming out of summer going into fall those tend to be the hot times where we see a lot of uh, allergic dogs and when we say allergies now steve uh, it's so different than what we're talking about on the human side because it's such a blanketed statement of so many things. You know, in fact there's a whole world of veterinary dermatologists out there for this.
0: Sure, sure. All right. So I want to talk about some of the things dogs are allergic to. And actually I think number one on the list is something that might surprise people.
1: I like that you said might there. See what you did there? I don't know what I do. Well, so mites. So you think of fleas. <laughs> I see what I did. All right. Fleas, certain uh, mites such as sarcoptic mage and demodex. There's all those different things that are there. Yeah. So that is the single biggest one because a lot of pet owners would say, oh, you know, we've had a very, it was very cold where we live. We didn't need to use the flea and tick preventative. Um, And we we do see a complete infestation of fleas that can happen. So make sure they are on a good flea and tick preventative.
0: Now, for obvious reasons, we want them because ticks spread disease. And by the way, studies have been done in major cities, including Chicago, that demonstrate ticks are most certainly there. Lyme disease most certainly, incidentally, occurs in Chicago. But fleas are there, too. And especially following a wet spring, because that's great for fleas. They don't like it when it's really dry but they enjoy it when it's moist. So there are lots of fleas out there, even in Chicago, just hanging out at local parks. All it takes, I think potentially is one flea bite and you've got a dog that's kind of messed
1: up absolutely the saliva of a flea is so irritating to some of them and so even just to get rid of this is is really complicated and the flea life cycle is is what manifests it and to make it more complicated so it's one thing to just treat one dog treat all the pets clean the environment you know in the house all those different things but yeah one, one flea is all it needs to be to cause a problem
0: All right, so flea allergy dermatitis, for sure in Florida, but even in Chicago, is absolutely number one, and you wouldn't think that, but it's number one on the list. But also on that list, inhalant allergies as well. Are dogs allergic to kind of the same things that we might be in the environment?
1: Sure. Did you know that dogs and cats can be allergic to people? (laughs) And so... You know, and you wouldn't know that until you do, like, allergy testing, for instance. But, yeah, so your typical things, like, you and I would be allergic to. So your grasses, your pollen, your ragweeds, certain trees, dust mites, for instance. So, absolutely. And that's why, as we're going into the spring season, that's where it can really rev, rev up and be, like, a problem for some of these dogs that have allergies. And so what are the signs? You know, when you and I get, like, the runny nose, like, the watery eyes, that not usually manifests what we're seeing in dogs and cats. We tend to see them either scratching, scratching. Um, And the pattern distribution is very interesting versus what we see for flea allergy dermatitis. Um, When they have an allergic dermatitis, it's generalized. It's either the feet, um, also on their belly areas, near the base of the tail, their face. Same thing for cats as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, And I want to talk about cats a little bit too. Cats can be allergic to the same things in the environment as people can, as dogs can. And that is not uncommon, is it?
1: Not at all. But how does it look in a cat? Yeah, cats can manifest a little differently with their clinical signs. Sometimes they can have hair loss associated like near uh, their face, their belly, for instance, the base of the tail. Um, They don't lick their paws as much as we see for dogs, but hair loss is a big thing that we can see with uh, with our cats.
0: Or a rash kind of thing. Okay, but here's the question. How do you see it? So it's hard to catch it early in some cats because there's so much hair there you can't right. see what's going on and, until they really itch and itch and itch Right. but wow it's great if you can catch it earlier
1: yeah my best tip is for every cat parent the first of the month is just feel away see what I did there feel feel for lumps and bumps but Pick them up, like you said, look at their abdomen, make sure there's no areas of hair loss, there's no areas of like itchiness or infection, rashes, because the cat's tongue, as you know, is you know, very sandpaper and, and texture, so that mm-hmm. can really cause irritation if they're noticing things. And then also check stool samples, because if they're consuming fleas, you might notice it in their stool, and sometimes I've seen, uh, doing a physical exam, open up their mouth, and there's fleas that are crawling inside the mouth of cats because they're trying to lick and chew them off.
0: Mm, Ooh. Yuck. Right. Oh, please,
1: please, please.
0: Now we have to go to commercial after that. <laughs> but what I want to talk about is what we haven't talked about, and that is food. You would think, and people oftentimes say, "Oh, my pet has to be allergic to food." That's lower on the list as we're talking about. The other thing is, well, about those inhalant allergies, we haven't talked about. We need to. What do you do about it? We'll be back with Adam Chrisman, Doctor Adam Chrisman, to have that conversation. Next on WGN, Dr. Adam Christman is the chief medical officer at DVM 360. We're talking... Allergies. Yes. In dogs and cats. And right now we're talking about inhalant allergies, things in the environment. So mold, ragweed, grasses. Are these all things that dogs or even cats can be allergic to?
1: Yes, absolutely. And the, the list goes on. I mean, when we do something called allergy testing, which is often, uh, there's two different methods to do it. One is through a blood test, and the other one is we shave the animal and we do intradermal. I'm alert. So, fun fact I'm allergic to animals. So, I'm an allergy shot. Myself. Whoa, so. hold
0: on. Stop <laughs> the presses. Yeah. You, one yeah. of the most prominent veterinarians in America. Yes. You are revealing for the first time.
1: This is breaking news, everyone. <laughs> that uh, you are allergic. I'm allergic. It's got worse over the years. and so I know so many veterinarians that this happens to. Um, but yeah, so I'm on, you know, I give myself the injections in the arm uh, once a week and um, it keeps things at bay.
0: Are so, you allergic to dogs and cats?
1: Yes. Yeah. Horses, and then the ragwees and all those different things too. Things
0: so, in the environment yeah. as well
1: and I, and I will say too, Steve, to that point When I went through this myself I will say, I, I could testify Like, knowing, wow, this really works Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not taking like the zertex And those kinds of things So, and very similar along the lines with animals It's interesting, they respond similarly It does take time when you are doing Either allergy shots or they even now have drops That can go under the tongue For uh, dogs and cats, so but it does take time, a good like six to eight weeks, I would say, for you to see results.
0: You know, sometimes people just open their cabinet in their bathroom and pop an antihistamine they may take to their pet. Not a good idea, is it?
1: You know, it's the funny thing you say that that is the number one question I will say that I get on TikTok live stream about. Can I give my dog Benadryl for itchiness? The number one question. And the answer is no. It's, it's really not going to do anything unless they have an anaphylactic reaction, like a bee sting, which you should take them to the veterinarian for because we have injections that can be much quicker. But, you know, Benadryl has its place for other things in veterinary medicine, but not for the itchy dog. And we know with a lot of research that's out there that it's a neuronal component. So when you think of antihistamine, you think of the histamine that releases and causes that itch. And and itchy dogs It's not a histamine response That we're seeing
0: Well the other thing I'm concerned about Are decongestions Which are So the Allegra D With that D Or uh, Claritin D I'm trying to think of The other brand names There are a bunch of them With that D Are great for humans But that's a problem for dogs. Yeah,
1: we don't want them to be involved with that because actually they can it can do a lot of damage to them. So plain and simple, just avoid avoid those overall. I really wouldn't recommend them. Uh,
0: absolutely. Yep. Uh, but there are things that the veterinarian can recommend. There are products now. Yep. Uh I'm thinking cytoquin and cytokine.
1: Yeah. So and, Apoquil and Apoquil, Cytopin, Yeah, are... and cytopoint are probably cytopoint. Yeah. Yeah. The go to. And you know, I will get i I'll have many pet owners that say Cytopoint works great for my dog, Apical works great. Now, these are like sister medications is how it works. One's an injection, one's for pills, one's for approved for dogs less than 12 months of age, one's for greater than 12 months of age, and they they both great. And I will say that we're living in a time where things are expensive, And, you know, we have what's called spectrum of care. We talk about the different ways that we go about. What's the gold standard anymore? What is it, really, hypothetically? So I really do say, to the point is, if we need to send dogs on a steroid or a low dose of something like that to settle them down, we have to be mindful of the side effects associated with it. But I will not send a dog out the door without something to control that itch because there's a lot of great options available now.
0: Mm -hmm. But people often assume, okay, my dog's allergic. It's got to be the food. Right. That's the go-to. But in fact, that's lower down it on the is. list. Yeah, yeah, it
1: is lower. They're saying around like 18 to 20% of dogs will have food allergy, which is still a you know decent number, but not nearly where everyone freaks out and be like, i got to change the food. I always put pause on things because you have to do things, you know, we as veterinarians, we're problem solvers. I always like to think dermatology is literally like a puzzle piece and we have to do one thing at a time. If we go too fast, we're not going to know what's going to work. And so it takes time to do it. So food allergy trials, food elimination trials, whatever you want to Call it it does take a good six to eight weeks Explain what that is well you try to give A dog or a cat a novel or A protein or a carbohydrate but
0: first of all You're assuming so you've ruled out Probably for and there are ways In which you could do this uh, you rule out The possibility of an inhalant allergy Or an environmental allergy After that and you rule out fleas Yes but after that Then you okay consider the food right.
1: So you got to stepwise fashion. You know you do this what's called skin scraping cytologies rule out infection if there's bacteria yeast uh, any fleas or ticks and then of course if there's inhalant allergies or environmental allergies and then you say okay. Um, You know, pet parent This is what we're going to do Because I need everybody to be aligned on this And this is important, I say Because I don't want it just to be from one person I need all of it Even the children need to understand this is important So what we do is we, you know Can switch their diet over to something That their immune system hasn't recognized before And nowadays it's actually hard Because so many things are commercially available Like when I first started practicing I would be doing like venison and potato But now that's like pretty much readily available. So we have to be kind of smart in terms of like which protein and carbohydrate we're going to use and recommend. So there's that component. The other thing with food allergies is something called hydrolyzed diets. And what that means is proteins are very large macromolecules. And so when we do a hydrolyzed pro- um, process, it takes these enzymes, divides them up really, really, really tiny so that the immune system doesn't recognize them. Before. They
0: can't be allergic.
1: Right. So they can't be allergic. So it bypasses that. So it takes time. And you have to do that with treats. <laughs> right.
0: So what, what you mean by that is they can't get treats except hydrolyzed treats or right. treats that like mini carrots or so something of that nature.
1: Yeah, you can be creative with your veterinarian about what's available, but certainly six to eight weeks to see a difference.
0: And And at that point, you can tell, perhaps.
1: Right, that they have it. Now remember, so that's like the third component of the itchy dog or cat. And then the final one that we should address and talk about is atopic dermatitis. Which is? So when you rule out everything else, yeah. you come to this conclusion that this dog literally has allergies, essentially. And you know for whatever reason it is, it's a multimodal approach to treating the itchy dog. So we talked about apical and cytopoint. We talked about food allergies. We talked about flea and tick preventative. Think of all of that. But every now and then, they're going to have peaks and valleys of these flare-ups. And to our point that we previously t- chatted about is going into the spring season, coming out of the summer and fall. That's where you can really have a you know a problem with like atopic dermatitis. But some of these atopic dogs, I think of like these Shih Tzus, every four to six weeks, Steve, they're always having an issue. It's awful. Yeah. It feels yeah. so terrible for
0: them. Yeah, and, and certain breeds are more predisposed. So right. individual dogs yes. are, are just more predisposed for who knows what reason, their own genetics. Right,
1: yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of like the, the breeders are doing a lot of great work trying to help minimize the, this, this whatever it is. A lot of research is happening about this too. And, um, but, like, atopic dermatitis is a frustrating one. And I always say this to, to my pet parents is that this is something that's manageable, not treatable. And it's a big difference to understand because I need yeah. their buying to realize that we're going to see each other a few times. <laughs> this isn't just like one and done type yeah. of a situation. Yeah.
0: Well, seeing you, that's got to be fun.
1: Right. Oh, yeah. We always have a good time. Of
0: course you do. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Adam Chrisman, Chief Medical Officer, DVM 360. It is always interesting to talk to you and, most importantly, fun. Thanks for the chat, Steve. So what do you think the number one cause of death is in cats between about the ages of two to six or seven or eight years of age? It's not kidney disease. That happens generally later. So what, what do you think it is? Cancers? Well, that's a problem, but it happens generally later in their lives. It is heart disease, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's called. And sometimes the only symptom is sudden death. Sometimes there is a symptom, but then what can you do about it if even diagnosed? And then let's talk about the dogs. Yeah, dogs get a couple of different kinds of heart diseases, sometimes as they age, or sometimes it's genetic. Well, we're going to talk with a veterinary cardiologist, Dr. Brian Scanson, next week about all of this, heart disease and dogs, heart disease and cats, and most importantly, both how to observe that something might be going on that gives you concern, and then once diagnosed, what the heck to do about it. That's next week. We do talk to the best here. I'm very lucky to say that. From The Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Ann Lilly, Is a veterinary behaviorist, who, by the way, is also an assistant professor of clinical medicine. And what is a veterinary behaviorist?
2: So a veterinary behaviorist is somebody who has gone through veterinary medicine and done everything that's associated with that, and then gone through and had an additional rigorous experience specifically focusing on behavior, the physiology of behavior, how learning and cognition happens, how we can influence behavior from learning and cognition, how we can influence behavior through medication, supplements, pheromones, and how all of those also interact with what we classically sort of call normal medicine and normal health and diseases or regular medicine. Um, and for just for funsies, if that wasn't a big enough task... Um, it, it covers pretty much all of the species, so it's a pretty it's a pretty big undertaking to to gain that sort of knowledge. And then we wrap it all up with a very very large two day exam, and then you can call yourself a veterinary behaviorist.
0: But it's an elite group, isn't it? <laughs> You know, It's, it's growing it, but It is yeah, you know, but It's still. funny I don't
2: think of us as, as elites You uh, are Despite elite. the fact that we're so small I always get caught up on that People are like Oh well you know You must be very special I was like ah, There are 91 of us And they're like What? And I'm like Yeah there are 91 of us And then I stop and think about it It's like Oh one of 91 is a small elite group And they're my colleagues So I think that they're amazing But they're also the people That I spend a lot of time with So that's become my normal
0: <laughs> Well I remember when there were uh, yes, I do go back that far when there were fifty of you.
2: Yep, it's it's been growing and it's been growing faster more recently, which is absolutely necessary. We can't keep up with the demand um, at the current numbers that we have. We have to grow faster while continuing to grow well. Right, um, that's important too.
0: And the number one reason why animals are relinquished to shelters, or in the case of cats, just sometimes just dumped outside, uh, is behavior.
2: Yep, it's behavior is still the number one cause of rehoming, relinquishment, or euthanasia in dogs and cats under age three. So it's it's kind of an epidemic.
0: Yeah, and I would argue growing because the number of pets in America is growing.
2: That is true.
0: Yeah, so I want to talk to you about one of the talks you gave uh, at the Western Veterinary Conference in Las Vegas. And here's how I'll bring it up. Uh, I was in Mexico City speaking, and the speaker right after, right before, right no, before me, and I was g- walking onto the stage, and she said, you're going to hate my talk, the speaker after me, and she said, you're going to hate my talk. I said, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> I what an introduction. <laughs> I know. I didn't even know her. But I'm known for fighting breed bands and saying, and right now I'm working on this, Uh, Where in Illinois If you have certain breeds And all over the country Not only Illinois If you have certain dog breeds For renter's insurance
2: You might not be able to get it
0: You either can't get it or you have the renter's insurance But who wonders who, Who inquires So you've adopted a dog You've done a wonderful thing by adopting a dog Right? and it looks like a Rottweiler or Doberman mix or whatever it is, you don't call your insurance company typically and say, is that okay? Who thinks of doing that? And then if something does happen that involves the dog, then you find out, "Uh uh-oh, it wasn't okay. The other issue simultaneously that I'm working on are uh, renters, the uh, home, what is it, HOAs, Mm. H-O-A-S, the homeowners associations As well as uh, The landlords that say No dog over 20 pounds, 30 pounds, whatever it is Or they say specifically No dog that looks like a pit bull Or no dog that looks like an Akita Fill in the blank sure. So I'm known for fighting these breed Specific type things But she said to me You're going to hate my talk because I'm talking about how our dogs have been bred For thousands, many Breeds Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years To do certain things And that's true too It
2: is, yeah I think it's it's important to think about what we're talking about when we say that Are there breed behaviors that we have selected for For certain breeds to do better than others? Absolutely Dachshunds are not great at fetching geese that fall into the air out of water They just aren't <laughs> they, they physically aren't set up for it And we have not been breeding them for that propensity for years We just haven't but that's also different from saying breeds have specific behavior problems. And while there are some trends in those, um, they are not the, the types of trends that most people are, think that exist out there. And when we look at the data as a whole, what we still find is that while there are some trends... Oftentimes they're not in alignment with the types of legislation or requirements that we we find out there, and there's still more variability between individuals than there are along breed lines when we're talking about behavior problems. So yes, if you want a dog who's going to retrieve, getting a retrieving breed is more likely to get you what you want. But if you come to me and say, "Doc, I want to adopt a new dog, and I just I can't bring myself to deal with any separation anxiety, what breed should I get i don't I don't have a way to answer that question. Either because we don't have enough data Or because that's not going to fall along breeds
0: mm-hmm. So What then determines What a dog will be like Breed has something to do with it yeah. But so do other things
2: Yeah so right breed is Just a loose collection of some of the genetics That the dog has so genetics are going to play a part Epigenetics or what genes are Expressed is going to play a part If you have a gene but it's turned off We don't care right? Mm-hmm. unless it's supposed to be on Then we care and um, Maternal care can have a strong influence on behavior Socialization period has a huge influence on behavior And that's so short in dogs, right? Three to 12 weeks of age, very narrow window And then those three things all interact To help form the dog that you get out of those things And that's a really complicated interaction
0: And also, uh, I believe, according to one study Diet in utero So if the mother was malnourished That will play a role on what, and you don't know any of that when you adopt a dog from a shelter, but none of that has anything to do with breed.
2: Correct, correct. And I joke all the time that the reason I can't breed dogs is I can't keep track of a damn stress for 53 (laughs) days, and I would never forgive myself for doing it wrong.
0: Yeah, so in other words, if that mother that's carrying the puppies is stressed, that plays a role as well. Correct, Correct. You know, which is something people don't even think about necessarily. No, and
2: it's hard to track even if you are thinking about it.
0: Yeah, because what stresses out that dog, you know Then when a client comes to you and says What is the right dog for me, for my family, for my lifestyle I guess I should be asking another question before I ask that Is why don't clients come to you and ask that question How often have you said A client comes in with a breed, name the breed, it doesn't matter And you're thinking in your head Because they already have the dog You don't want to say it out loud Oh my gosh, I wish they didn't get that dog
2: Yeah, so in my previous general practice life, I probably had more people ask me that ahead of time than I do now just by numbers. Where I frequently see people ask now is they've already had a catastrophic, emotionally heart-wrenching experience with my previous pet with them, Mm -hmm. our patient, and now they're trying to avoid that. And there's only so much that we can do to try and prevent that. There are things. None of them are also guarantees.
0: Yeah, we're going to come back and talk more with Dr. Ann Lilly. I wonder how you feel about this. Is there any dog breed that you wouldn't recommend, period? End of story for anyone. We'll find out when we come back on WGN. She's a veterinary behaviorist. Her name is Dr. Leanne Lilly. She's at The Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine. I love talking with veterinary behaviorists. And I'll tell you, you guys... Who do what you do save so many lives and through the books decoding your dog and decoding your cat both of which I had the honor to be involved with in a small way but written by your colleagues
2: they were and I they proceed is. those two books precede me so when I endorse them I love saying and I didn't write any of them so I just <laughs> think they're good stuff that's not self-promotion
0: but it's important because it's a way to reach the public with real science because everything you do is based on science.
2: That's that's correct. Um, and it's another thing that we sort of, as a college, largely feel is that we can't stay in our little silos trying to save the world one pet at a time. I mean, I love my client-patient interactions. Mm-hmm. They are so rewarding. But that's also, right, I'm only helping that one pet and that one client at that one instant in time. And so when we branch out and do things like put together a book or do interviews that... Vast groups of people are going to hear, right? We have the opportunity to impact lots and lots of people and lots and lots of cat lives and lots and lots of dog lives and their children. And so that's a really big impact and it's very, very rewarding.
0: So, has anyone ever walked in and had a dog where you've cringed and said, I wish, given your lifestyle, you had come to me first? (laughs) I think.
2: All veterinarians have had that moment um, at the types of patients that I see now I think that's less of, of the problems that I run into um, or now I know better and I don't necessarily see it in that lens but it is certainly a component to think about right if you get a dog who's been bred for hundreds of generations to go running at full out speed dog speed which is faster than human speed and you are the kind of person who wants to come home at the end of the day and sit on your couch with your dog and be stationary. Those two things are totally okay. That first dog is okay. That person type is okay. But they're going to struggle to live together. You're, you're picking a roommate or almost like a marriage, right? You're living together intensely for a very long time. And so we want to try and be as often as we can as intentional about it. The problem is, dogs are cute cats are cute and so very frequently we get tied up in how do they look and what do i think i know about those and then also there's a lot of variation in between individuals versus along breed lines and so sometimes we try and get a dog to fulfill those and we find out oh i got a golden retriever who doesn't like tennis balls (laughs) <laughs> so much for practicing my pitching and having them bring the ball back, right? It becomes a...
0: Well, there is such a thing, by the uh, There
2: are. There yeah, are. Yeah. There are also Labradors who don't like water.
0: Yes. Yeah. I, I had a Brittany who would look at me. Brittany's were bred to go in the water. And uh, the first time I threw the ball into the water, she just ran up to the water at the beach, looked back at me and said, you go get it. Yep. yep. I mean, not interested in me getting it. Is there any breed you say... So, yes, absolutely. That If you're going to be... I'm not sure you should be running regularly 20 miles with any dog, but maybe a Weimaraner, maybe a Dalmatian. They were bred to run long distances. Um, Definitely not a Dachshund or a Basset Hound, right, to take the extreme example. So certainly choosing the right dog for you matters. Having said that, is there any breed you would choose for no one? Are there really bad breeds?
2: Yeah, I... I think really the answer to that is just no. Um, And I hate to boil things down to simple answers because I feel like everything in behavior, the the short answer is always it depends. And so I love to stick with that answer and then explain why it depends. But really, in terms of a breed there's not going to be a breed that's been selected for basically every behavior nobody wants. We have not bred dogs to do nothing that we want or find valuable. So there isn't going to be a breed that, oh, guess what? Meets no one's standards for dogs at all ever. Now, are there breeds that are more likely to do certain things than others? Yes. Can those same behaviors be problematic in one context and not in another's? Absolutely. So right. A border collie herding sheep professionally, not a problem. A border collie hurting, H-E-R-D, not hurting, five-year-olds might be problematic. Sure. Right? And so we have to think about all of those things. But does that mean if I, you know, was parenting five-year-olds and I didn't like border collies hurting my five-year-olds that all border collies are bad and nobody should have them? It doesn't mean that at all.
0: Do you wish that, uh, and I've been talking about this for years, uh, veterinary technicians, I think, could be utilized more in many ways, and that's a whole different conversation. But one of those ways would be to give advice to pet parents before they get a pet about what kind of pet to get, first of all, and secondly, where to get that pet from.
2: Sure. I mean, I think anybody who has the opportunity to be in that position of education and availability could potentially be utilized for that. But we also have to make sure that we're getting them good information so that they can give good information to pet parents or potential pet parents. Um, And that's part of where, right, those big expansive education things that we do, decoding your dog, decoding your cat, talking at CE, becomes really important um, because if the technician who's having that pre-adoption counseling isn't given good information or doesn't know what the science does and doesn't say, they're going to make the best recommendation that they can. They want that to be successful. But we want to make sure that they have all the data to do that. And the same is true with shelter consultations. We want to make sure they have good data and good information to make those choices.
0: So, the number of pets every year has been increasing since uh, somewhere in the 1970s. Uh, every time there's a new survey taken, the number of pets increases. Uh, but it took a a crazy increase. It skyrocketed when the pandemic hit. Uh, In part because shelters said, we don't know what's going to happen. We need you to foster or adopt animals. And people stepped up. Not only in America, but all over the world. And including right here in Chicago. The shelters were emptied, which is a great thing. So we now have, as the numbers of pets continues to go up, by the way, uh, significantly more pets than we have children, for example, in America are you seeing a significant number of increase of behavior problems
2: we are and I don't know if it's just because of the increase in pet numbers um, but also because when people are home all the time with their pets they notice more things or they notice them sooner um, so there are a lot of factors that that may be going into that um, the also other thing that you know I I can't get a sample of because I already have a sampling bias and that is I work in an area that's very much aware of the existence of veterinary behaviorists. Um, We have four in the state and hopefully soon to be five. So our referral base, the trainers in the area, the veterinarians in the area, they know that we're a thing and that we exist. And so Mm -hmm. they're very appropriately quick to send those patients to us. If you don't live in that kind of area, everybody who might be involved in that pet's care might not know that that's an option, or how to make that an option for them, in which case that's going to be a number that we don't ever see. So, yes, are our numbers up? Absolutely. Do I know which one of those factors is the strongest driver? I don't.
0: Interesting conversation. Dr. Leanne Lilly, Veterinary Behaviors, thank you for all you do.
2: Oh, thank you. And
0: thank you very much for a interesting conversation.
2: Happy to talk with you.
0: So I'm hitting a hammer, and I hit my finger instead of the nail, and I say, Oh, and I say a word that I cannot say on the radio. Well, no one would be surprised. After all, that's only human, right? Well, it turns out that swearing isn't only human. Chimpanzees are fond of swearing, too. In humans, swear words are related to our taboos as our society. Swear words tend to be based around things that we think of as sacred, private, or slightly shameful religious sex or bodily functions. (laughs) What constitutes bad language changes from place to place, and maybe from species to species. When fighting, wild chimps sometimes throw excrement at one another. Orangutans high up in the trees intentionally defecate, or maybe urinate on researchers that are annoying them by taking notes about them, scientists I mean. Uh, When not using oral language, they are clearly attempting to deliver a message, and I think succeed at doing that. There are reports of lowland gorillas in captivity learning to offer the middle finger as a gesture to one another, modeling what zookeepers periodically do. What's interesting is they don't offer the finger randomly, but instead, when there's conflict, they apparently understand the context of what that's used for. So, Do dogs and cats swear? Well, they absolutely do express emotions via their signaling and vocalizations, but are they swearing, per se? Probably not, or at least not like we do, or our very close relatives, the chimpanzees, or the orangutans, or the gorillas, apparently do the same. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, on WGN.